Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, today we have the amazing Carrie Kelly joining us. So excited. I first met Carrie over 12 years ago at an off-the-mat workshop in Esalen, California, which was amazing and life-changing and awesome. And while we haven't stayed in tight connection, I did go to one of your retreats, which was also amazing. And I've sort of been watching Carrie grow and watching her inspiring words of wisdom on her various social media channels and her co-founding of Citizen Well, and then to her recently launched book, American Detox. I just have been reading American Detox and loving it so much. And it's a super, super brave book, I think, that takes an unflinching look at the health and wellness industry and offers some exercises and practices for us all to be more focused on what truly makes us well. What I love about this book is that it's not just sitting back trying to wag your finger at us or something, but it also is really empowering and helps give us some specific ideas about things that we can all do to sort of look at our own experiences and really help. As I mentioned, Carrie is the founder of Citizen Well, a movement that is democratizing well-being for all. Carrie is a descendant of generations of firemen and first responders, and she has dedicated her life to kicking down doors and fighting for justice. These are words from her own website. Carrie has been teaching yoga for over 20 years and is known for making waves in the wellness industry by challenging norms, disrupting systems, and mobilizing people to act. We are so excited to have you here today, Carrie. Your book is beautiful, but I'd love for you to start with telling us a little bit about your journey and points along the way that maybe gave you some ahas or how you got to being where you are today. Oh my gosh, like a long and winding road. (laughs) First of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be in this conversation with you and thank you for that really generous introduction. Yeah, where do you begin to tell the story of your very messy You know, life, (laughs) the way that I begin my book is probably one of the most profound events in my life. But of course, that's not where my life begins. The big twist in my life, one of many, in fact, was 9-11. I was living in New York at the time. I was on the up and up. Like I was like very much invested in climbing the corporate ladder, being the perfect everything. I grew up like an overachiever, you know, outside of New York, trained to play the game and compete and be over everything, to be a lot. Kind of the American way in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, really following kind of the all-American blueprint, right? For who you're supposed to be in the world. And I bought, I really bought into that. I was really invested and I was aggressively like going after all the things. And by the time I was 25, I was married. I had like a really good job in advertising sales. I had a big car. I was buying a house. I, I was doing like, I was checking all the boxes that were taught to check and On this one day in September, this like epically beautiful, perfect fall day in New York City, my life changed. My stepfather was a lieutenant at Ladder 15, which was in the South Street Seaport, just a few blocks away from Ground Zero. So he was one of the first ladders to respond to the towers. In fact, he saw the second plane go into the second tower and sort of rerouted his men in rapid response to go into that building. And when so many people were running down and out, he was running up 
He was running in and up with, I don't know, like I forget how many pounds, like 40 some odd pounds of gear and did this like epic thing, you know, like he did this epic thing. I mean, I've spent, you know, 21 some odd years now reflecting on his courage and his fear and his bravery. And so he got all the way up to the floor of impact, which is the, which was the 78th floor in tower two. And, and obviously the, the, the towers came down and with them, everything I had known to be normal and safe and real and trusted. And so that was a huge disruption in my life. I was just forever changed. Like I could never go back to who I was. And I feel like often when people talk about a disruption like this in their lives, what we assume is that like you wake up, like you have this wake up call and then everything becomes clear and you pivot your life and you're like on to something. Like that's not at all how it happens, y'all. So like the way it went down <laughs> for me is that I was like, oh shit, what do I do now? You know, and it was a really chaotic moment, obviously. Like it's, we spent many, many weeks hoping he was alive many, many weeks then searching for his body. And then, you know, for many, many weeks, months, years, really trying to understand what the hell had happened. Right. Meanwhile, your life is completely destroyed. I often like talked about it as like, just like crumbling in the rubble of ground zero. Like that's where my old life was left buried right in that pile. And it was not a pretty clean, straight, linear awakening for me. It was very much a slow and painful unraveling, quite frankly, right? Because you, you begin with dissonance, you begin with grief, you begin by questioning everything. And then you basically watch your life fall apart around you. And that's sort of how it happened for me is I just crumbled and I started to ask really hard questions, like existential questions about like, why am I here? How did this happen? What am I supposed to do with my life now? Like, who, who am I supposed to be in the world? How are we going to put our, our family and our lives back together? How are we going to put our city and our country back together? So I was really faced with like deep questions and for the record, no answers. Like, right. I was just like, <laughs> you know, you think that like the universe is going to download something. Like, if I just pause long enough, something will come. Right. <laughs> well, and ironically, this is when I found wellness. Right. And that too, wasn't a like enlightened experience for me. In fact, like the way that I found wellness is I was taking this Bikram class for all the wrong reasons. I had a terrible eating disorder at the time. And so, you know, like I would leave feeling lighter and, and it was like a masochism, right? Like that's basically what that class was like for me. And after 9-11, I started to really fall apart on my mat. Like I was the girl in the corner hysterically crying and not really understanding what was happening to my body, but like falling apart. And I think the thing that intrigued me about it, and I didn't have words for it at the time, I was able to feel something on my mat that I couldn't off my mat. Like I was in such a state of like trauma and triage most of the time with my family and in New York City that like I, I couldn't access my grief. I couldn't find myself. Like it was like I was lost in the chaos of it. And then I would hit my mat and I would feel everything. And it was horrible. I mean, it was like awful, but there was something about that where I was like, I felt human. 
So it invited you back, even though you felt awful when you were doing it. Yes? I just was like, there's something happening to me is really what I felt that something is happening here. And I want to know more. And again, like I didn't know what was happening, but I was desperate to feel myself again. I was desperate to feel human. I was. And so anyway, so that's really what got me on the path to wellness. And it wasn't some like, you know, like self-help enlightened <laughs> beams of light shooting out of my head and it was a fucking mess. And yeah. What's really striking me is what you're describing is you went from moving through life with absolute certainty. Here's what I want. Here's what I'm supposed to be doing. Here's where I'm going to a complete and total loss of all certainty. Totally. Well, and what I'll add to what you're saying is in that moment, I started to actually ask myself, is that really what I wanted? Or is that what I was told I was supposed to want? I really started to grapple with that. Like, wait a minute, where did I learn that I needed to be perfect? Where did I learn that I needed to climb some corporate ladder? Where did I learn that I needed to, you know, kill or be killed, you know, in like corporate America? Like, where did I learn those ideas? Right. And why did I sign up for like, it just like, I really started to question why I complied, quite frankly, with that sort of predetermined, pre-described path. And anyway, so that, so like, that was also a question for me. And so like, was I certain or was I just doing what I was told? And to your point, like, there's something beautiful, like, you know, in theory about that realization. And also there's no ground to that realization. You're like, wait a minute. You mean, I don't know who I am and I can be anything and I can do it. You know, there's like no, floor. but I'm completely destabilized now. <laughs> completely. Like I had no ground, no floor. And so it was really disorienting. And what I'll say about my yoga and meditation practice at the time is that even though that was a real messy arena, if you will, I love that Brene Brown quote about the arena. Like when I hit my map, I was in the, the arena, you know, wrestling with my demons, wrestling with these questions, wrestling with my pain and my grief. And for whatever reason, it felt like a container for me to live into those existential questions. What is it do you think about being on your mat and participating in yoga that really shook you to your core, that really sort of was the place that you could feel? What is the difference between that and anything else you were doing at the time? Well, I don't think I understood it at the time, but when I look back, what I believe is that I had inherited this sort of like pre-described plan of how I was supposed to live my life and who I'm supposed to be and follow the rules and do as you're trained. And and I think there's a dissociation in that. It's almost like disembodied. Like I was a robot doing this thing that I was told I was supposed to do. And so the yoga really called me to like connect to my guts, right? To connect to my body, to feel into my trauma, to ask hard questions, to question everything that I had been told and that I had thought was true about myself and about my life and who I was supposed to be in the world. And so something about feeling right into my discomfort, feeling into my pain, feeling into my grief feeling into my questions and my not knowing was profoundly human. There's something about being on the mat that facilitated you feeling that. So is it partly just being in your body and the movement? Was it the invitation from their teachers that you had? What do you think was the thing that really woke that up a little bit? I mean, I think it's as simple as I was really dissociated. Not only that, I want to say that I had a violent and abusive relationship with my body. I was an athlete my whole life. I had an eating disorder. Even the way I hustled and really drove myself to compete in corporate America was very robotic, right? It wasn't 
compassionate. It wasn't kind. I didn't nourish myself or nurture. When I would work out, I would like, would hurt myself. You know what I mean? I would deprive myself, right? When I would eat, I would beat myself up, right? When I would go to yoga, I really think it was as simple as like, allowed me to remember myself, not just like as a human, but as a person who deserved to be taken care of, as a person who deserved to be loved, right? As a person who deserved to heal. And like I said, I didn't have words for it, but I was like, I want to know more about this. And that's really what put me on the path, this sort of hardcore path towards relentlessly, (laughs) desperately, I would say, seeking healing and wellness. I'm just so struck by how powerful of a statement to say you had a violent and abusive relationship with your own body. I mean, it's such visceral language. And it just makes me think of how many times somebody has said, I've been in this group of, oh, I had such a great workout today. It just really kicked my butt. I don't even really quite know how to articulate it, but just really powerful words. Well, and even, you know, when I think about so much of the like rhetoric of wellness that I've been exploring over the last two decades, even the invitations to like life hack, right? To body hack as if we should hack. The bodies are like a miracle. Like our bodies are like designed for resilience and for healing. And yet the innovation, right? That humans are bringing to the the body of work that is like organic and natural healing is to life hack or even all the calls to become superhuman, right? To build superhuman immune protocols that as if it could withstand a global pandemic. I mean, like some really absurd, So that too feels really violent to me, right? But it's framed, especially in the context of wellness culture, it's framed as an invitation, right? To like perfect yourself or protect yourself or preserve yourself. Our human body is a powerful machine in and of itself. We don't need to hack it. And we definitely don't need to abuse it. And I just like, I grew up doing a lot of that, right? I like really shredded my body in athletics and then I shredded it in yoga. And I continued to do that for many, many decades. I mean, I would say I'm 47 years old. I'm only now starting to understand the benefit and the value of rest. My yoga practice now is like 20 minutes in the morning is like so in the past, if I didn't do like a 90 minute sweaty yoga practice, that was like hardcore. Like it didn't count. That's a horrific way to be in relationship with yourself. For sure. To build on that a little bit. So you find yourself on the mat, which is a little bit of your awakening in some ways. And yet you kind of still dipped down back into the, I'm going to use this tool that's helping me, but I'm going to maybe overdo it a little bit. So I'm just curious about that part of your journey and why you started focusing on wellness and how that came to be the thing that in a lot of ways is your life work. I mean, I feel like I'm one of many, many, many millions of people in the, in not just the U S but around the world that are desperately seeking wellness. And it's no wonder, right? I mean, when you think about the state of healthcare, the state of systems that really aren't designed to take care of most of us, it's like, no wonder we're reaching for other forms of care or we're reaching for ways to feel something in our body again, or to feel good in a really unimaginable and chaotic moment such as this one. And so I'm not surprised, right? That I was hooked by that sort of promise of wellness, 
But I think what I would say is that looking back, so much of what wellness promised me was more of the same. I thought I was like escaping the corporate world and doing this like radical 180 pivot into this like enlightened, blissed out, calm, you know, like I, I did, <laughs> yo, like I played the part. I was like mala bees and yeah. pants and green juice and yoga mats sling on my back and I was all in. I was hooked, not just by the way it was making me feel. There was like a church to it. There was like a religion almost that I kind of bought into. And I sort of went straight in all the way. And I became a yoga teacher. And and looking back, like so much of what that world promised me was more of the same, right? It was just different clothes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. The emperor, you know, has new clothes type of thing. Yeah. The images that I saw in wellness were like skinny white women eat only, you know, kale and quinoa. Don't talk about anything negative, positive vibes only like all of these really <laughs> toxic rules, right. That wellness was kind of like bringing into my life that I was sort of falling for it. I mean, like literally like I would like speak yoga sutras to anyone who would listen. I was a very <laughs> annoying family member, <laughs> you know, like when you buy into like a new, you know, they were like, what the LF is happening to Carrie? I think I just like fell into sort of this new manifestation. Wellness was sort of like the exact same all-American culture, just, you know, with a, a new window dressing. And I only realized it because I, w I actually wasn't getting well, right? So like I was hooked and I kind of like went all the way into wellness and, and it actually wasn't delivering on what it was promising me. I was feeling more isolated, more kind of divorced from reality. I think like one of the things that wellness does is it invites us to bypass the very uncomfortable lived reality of like what it is to be alive on the planet right now, given what we're facing, you know, rampant inequality, climate crisis, all that kind of stuff. And so I just sort of chose to like not look at all that stuff. I became more disconnected from the people around me, from my family, more disconnected from reality and from society. And I really started to buy into some like really toxic ideologies that weren't about living truth. They were about bypassing truth. They were about rising above so that you don't have to feel the discomfort. Ironically, right? Like I found wellness because I wanted to feel myself again. And because it was like inviting me into like a new felt sense of being human. And yet so much of what I heard from dominant wellness culture was don't feel or look over there. Don't look over here. This is messy. <laughs> look but it's like hidden a little bit, right? Because that's not exactly what's said. What's said is embrace positivity. And yet that's an exact example of like not dealing with reality. Totally. Like to me, that, that also says don't be negative. Don't create conflict when conflict is like an aspect of the human experience, right? Or, or don't talk about very real and true things that are happening in the world that make people uncomfortable. You're right. Like you hear one message, right? But what, but underneath that message, what it's really saying is don't feel the discomfort. Don't feel that stuff. Only feel up here, only feel the surface stuff. So then you get to like live a really artificial and fake life. And so, yeah, so there was a real you know cost to that for me personally, but there was a real cost to that to me in my life too, my marriage started to fall apart, which was like a real, I feel like metric that despite, you know, becoming this like enlightened yoga teacher who was trying to change the world, that I wasn't actually really changing much. If I couldn't actually live those values in my relationship, I'll just say, you know, 9-11 was really 
a shit show for me, as you can imagine, as it was for so many people. But letting my marriage fall apart was like, in some ways, much harder. And I remember I was talking to my friend, Nikki Myers, who's an amazing yoga teacher and recovery specialist. And I remember saying to her, is it possible that the pain of divorce feels worse than the pain of 9-11? Because I was kind of like, it's nothing wrong with me like that. I like it was very mutual. And we realized that we, we weren't able to make our marriage work. And but it was like the unraveling and sort of the, the way that I describe it to people is it was like flesh tearing. Like you get married and you become enmeshed spiritually and physically and financially in all the ways habitually. And then you separate and it's like flesh tearing. And I was flabbergasted by the pain that that left for me, not only like physically and in my heart, but I didn't know who I was outside of my marriage. I was with this man for 18 years. That was like another really big wake up call that this wellness stuff's not really working for me. If I, <laughs> And I'm not saying like, like my marriage should have worked. I, I don't think it should have. But I also looking back, don't think I was the person I could have been in my marriage. Sure. And the reality of whether it should have ended or shouldn't have ended or, or you were who you wanted to be, but just the reality of the pain of the separation and the ripping apart is life-changing in so many ways. And so intense, unbelievably painful. It was so intense. Yeah. And it's so funny. Cause like now we have like a sisterhood of people that when someone is getting divorced, it's almost like rapid response work. It's like we rally because often people feel, you know, I felt empowered at first when I was like, I'm getting divorced. I made a decision. I was like, this is going to be right for us. Right. And then the pain and the, and the like disorientation and the falling apart often comes much later, which is sort of in line with the stages of grief. And I had a dear friend of mine, Heidi Seek who is one of my best friends to this day, show up in my life. I didn't even know her very well at the time. And she knew what was coming because she had been through divorce, right? So this is someone who has walked that path and was like, okay, I know what's coming. And so she just stood with me and walked with me through that. And at some point I was like in a puddle on the ground and she picked me up and she took care. So we have like a sisterhood now. And so whenever someone comes up to me and they're like, I'm getting divorced and I'll look at them and I'll be like, okay, here we go. And I know this path. I got you. FYI, it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> Even when it's your choice, it's going to surprise you because you're changing your shape, right? So it's like what you're asking for, it's not clean. Like you can just like, it's not like a light switch. You don't just shut it off and then everything clicks into some, there's, you know, flesh tearing, there's wounding, there's grief, right? There's a recalibration. Like you have to recalibrate away from another person into like a new, it's transformational, right? Like it's a metamorphosis and that's a really messy and painful process, right? We know that from understanding how caterpillars become butterflies, like not, not linear, not pretty, not clean. Right. So that was like another moment in my life where I was like, damn, this is hard. You know, what's so different about divorce. It's so interesting, especially when you, when you compare it to, for instance, the horrors of 9-11, sometimes in life, shit is hoisted on us. And we are then in the position of needing to respond to it and figure out how we pick ourselves up and move on. Divorce, we hoist on ourselves. And so even if it's, I'm divorced as well, and, and it was exactly the right decision for me and incredibly painful, by the way, that's when you and I met, although I wasn't talking about it at that time because I was so fucking shot down at the time. That's maybe why we met. 
Probably, right? I needed a sisterhood. Sherry was my sisterhood at the time. She was amazing. But what you're saying is so interesting because so often the stuff that happens to us in life happens. Like it happens, we respond, we figure out how to pick ourselves and move on. Divorce is like, I am causing myself this pain. Because even in your case, in my case, and other people, like it's the right thing to do, it still is incredibly painful. And yet we choose to to do that to ourselves. So it's a very different experience than when things happen to us, just like out of the blue. I love that. And I'm thinking about like the baggage that comes with being in control of some of those decisions, like shame. You're not just grieving loss. You're having to wade through the waters of shame. Like, did I do this? Did you do this? Am I a bad person? Are you a bad person? Did we do something bad? Like, you know what I mean? That was rough for me. That was like a whole new level of healing for me is really having to grapple with so much of like, whose fault was it? Or whose fault more was it? <laughs> like, it's both our faults, but it's a little bit more your fault, right. right? It's a much more comfortable place to be, right? And like, no matter how much I would say that to convince myself, internally, I was at war with myself. And I was having to like grapple with what did I do wrong? And am I a bad person? And did I fail? And like, oh, that's some messy shit. And to bring one more thing into it that you talk about in your book connected to the wellness industry is this idea of if we do all the right things, then nothing bad will happen, (laughs) right? And you talk about it in your book as it relates to the wellness industry, right? Selling this message of if you take the right supplements and if you eat the right food, then if you get sick, it's your fault somehow. I think there's a connection with what you're talking about in personal relationships as well, right? Like somehow this is my fault because I did something wrong. If I had done these five things correctly, it's this almost bastardization of personal responsibility. Completely and totally. I mean, I want to say I talk a lot about in the book about the myths of wellness, which are really like the myths of dominant all-American culture. Let's be clear, like I'm writing about health and wellness, but I'm really writing about America because they're not unique, right? Wellness is just sort of indoctrinated into this. And what you're naming actually feels like one of the most toxic horrific myths that not only have we been sold, but these are messages that we're being barraged with from every direction all the time. And I'm even just thinking about the ways in which healthcare, doctors, nurses, the entire health and medicine system is often blaming us for being sick or for being unwell and then profiting, which is another way of saying, don't look over here at this systemic shit show. You're to blame for the reason that you're sick, right? Or for the reason that you're disabled or for the reason that, and then building an entire wellness industrial complex, health industrial complex, you know, medicine industrial complex around our belief, right? That like we cause this, that I'm, I'm at fault, right? It's my fault that I'm sick. It's my fault. And what makes matters worse is that when I just think about all that we're facing in this particular moment, which to me, like so much of like the big crises we're staring down right now are proof of our interdependence, right? Like look at the global pandemic, right? Like that wasn't an isolated incident. 
climate change deeply interconnected, even inequality, right? Like you don't have inequality unless some people have and some people don't have. These are deeply relational issues that dominant culture is often telling us to treat with deeply individual, personal, it's your fault solutions. Wellness especially is like, take this pill, <laughs> which we know is like not, not only is it not true, but it's it's actually not going to get us into the future at this point, right? Like we're staring down some like really hard hardcore shit. And if we keep trying to treat complex systemic sickness and illness and issues, right. And problems with deeply individualized solutions, like just drink green juice or just buy an electric car, right. Or just reduce your personal carbon footprint. We're in big trouble as a humanity. And it's not to say that personal responsibility doesn't have a role in this, right? Like we should all take responsibility for our shit. Like I write about all my mistakes in this book. My editor was amazing. He was like, if you're going to write this book, you've got to be all in on falling on the sword and revealing all the ways in which you have messed up and learned the hard way. And so I try to do that in this book. But when I think about the medicine that we need in a culture that tells us that everything is about personal responsibility, it's collective, it's mutual responsibility, it's shared responsibility. Like we're responsible for each other, right? We can't leave people behind. We are responsible for this deeply unequal system. We all have a place in it. We're all responsible for the climate crisis. Let's be clear. I mean, I live in Venice. I got lots of things in here that are not climate friendly, right? Like whether we like it or not, we are all situated inside this really toxic culture this deeply unjust and unequal system, nobody is immune, nobody gets to escape. And so to me, the practice, right? And this is real wellness, I think, is to be like, what is my right role and responsibility? in all of this? How am I impacted and how am I implicated? And I don't mean that to be blame or shame. I mean, I just think the more we can talk about that, the more it actually takes the edge and the energy out of it. And the more we can actually get to work and be like, all right, there are things that we can do better. There are choices that I can make. There are ways that we can work together to try and move forward. And so that feels like if I think about what I learned in this whole process and what I learned, especially in writing this book in terms of like what is needed in this moment, this book doesn't provide, by the way, like five steps to the new you. <laughs> I was like, I am not writing another self-help book that replicates that system. Right. But it does point folks in the direction of like if toxic personal responsibility, extreme personal responsibility is what got us here, collective care might be the medicine, right? If bypassing is what is... If causing us to feel isolated and escape the truth of our situation, then like leaning in and coming together might be the medicine. So those are some of the, I called it recovery, but it's, it's like my own grappling with what's needed and how do we move forward and how do we, how do we navigate this very confusing, uncertain and messy moment towards being able to be well together? Well, especially I think in a society, and it's interesting that you call it American detox, because I think there's plenty of issues around the world, but this is a particularly American phenomena that you're, you're referencing of this individualism instead of collectivism. People that are reading your book are folks that are already maybe kind of interested. And so I'm curious what you think about getting to other people that are like, hey, hey, don't tread on me. I've got my thing. You do your thing over there, right? I'm good over here. Why is it my job to think about? And so I'm curious how we start to spread the word to evangelize a little bit, to get it out of folks that may 
not already be aligned in a way? I think we have to reduce our conversations to that of values because I have family members who don't align with me politically. I know lots of people who are like, we're not in the same camp politically and and from a value standpoint. But there are places where we really align and we just have differences of opinion around how we navigate those things. I believe that people want to be well. I believe that people want to belong. When I was studying sort of the hierarchy, especially not just within Western culture, but within the United States, you know, I believe that people want systems that actually take care of them. And some of, I think, the way that we're socialized and trained is to believe that only some of us can have those systems, right? It's like the zero-sum paradigm, right? So if I get healthcare, you can't get it. Or if I get a job, you can't have a job. Or if you have a job, you're taking that job away from me. This idea that we can't all have good things. And that is like a really unfortunate ideology to live by. And when you think about why everything is so unequal, it's not just because systems are designed that way. It's because we're all kind of buying into that, that there's not enough to go around. It's a real like horrific scarcity mindset. And so part of me is like, instead of talking about the issues, so to speak, I think we need to talk about values and we need to really listen to one another and get to the heart of like, what is it that you desire? What is it that you need, right? What is it? And then start to have more productive conversations about like, well, then how do we get there, right? Because that's where I think we split. But I believe deep down, more often than not, we do have some common ground. It's just how we're getting there, right? Are we going to be divide and conquer for the rest of our lives? Are we going to extract and destroy everything around us just so that we can live this short-term convenient life, right? Or are we going to make some different choices? You know, you use a phrase in your book quite a few times around, there is no well-being of me without well-being of we. I think that is such a profound phrase because you can take it all the way down to a family unit. I think in a family unit, that's not hard to understand, right? I can't be fully okay if other members in my household that I love are not okay. And you can start drawing bigger and bigger circles from there. And if we draw like a giant circle, if there's anything that has shown the truth of this, it's the pandemic, All the way from, if it's not safe for all of us to breathe collective air, it's not safe for any of us to breathe collective air. If the hospitals are collapsing, then there's no good healthcare for any of us. And so the pandemic is the example at its kind of largest manifestation, right? But when you really think about it in your own family or your own community, it's hard to argue with this idea. And yet people do. Which is kind of amazing to me. I mean, I think about the pandemic in particular. I think a lot of people are like, holy shit, we're all in this together. I say that with nuance, obviously, because we weren't really all in it together. We were being impacted very differently based on our location. But I think it was, to your point, revealed to us that we're breathing the same air and that we're all exposed in different ways, obviously. And yet there was a subset of people that were like, yeah, no. I'm immune or I don't want to take that vaccine or, you know, and we don't, that was confusing to me. And I'll tell you the story. I was on a plane. This is like maybe last year. I'm a hardcore mask wearer. even to this day, I actually just got over COVID. And I was unfortunately with my mom who is super immunocompromised. I was caretaking for her. She was about to go in and get a tumor removed literally the next day. And I came down with COVID. 
which put my mom at severe risk. And it was terrifying. I mean, the COVID sucked, by the way. It's, it's horrible. I don't wish it on anybody. If people are like, did you have a mild case? I was like, there is no mild about this thing. It's like a horrible beast. I had to like sit with in the, my entire time in quarantine, the reality that I may have put my mom's life at risk, right? Which it was just like a nightmare for me. It was like the worst, most horrible thing I could have imagined. And so anyway, so I'm that person. So I'm on a plane and this is right around the time where they started saying, you don't have to wear masks on planes. And I'm sitting next to a lovely young girl and her brother. And I think her family was sitting around us from somewhere. I don't know where I was flying from or flying to, but I, I was double masked <laughs> and she was sitting next to me and she had no mask on. I think she was like a teenager or something. And so at some point I'm eating, you know, those pretzels with peanut butter in them. I really, yes. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> so yummy. <laughs> they're, like my, they're like my favorite plain snack, you know? So I was like pulling my mask down and sneaking one in and putting my mask back. And at what point she says to me, she goes, is that peanuts? I was like, oh my God, it's peanut butter in the thing. And I said, are you allergic to nuts? And she said, yes. And I said, do you need me to stop eating these peanuts? Right. Because you might have an allergic reaction from the air or whatever the particle. I don't know what, I don't know how that works by the way, but like something. And she was like, yes. And I was like, no problem. I will stop eating it. I'm sorry. I put you at risk. So I put it away and then I'm sitting there next to her. And then I look at her and I'm like, you don't have a mask on. <laughs> Did you say that? I didn't because she was like a young teenager. Yeah, and yeah, I wasn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm not going to, but I had this moment to myself where yes. I was like, this is what collective care looks like. I don't even know you. I could have been like, I want to eat my peanut butter or whatever, you know, but I care about your life and your well being, And so I'm going to do what I can to make sure you're safe and you're okay. I don't know anything about her situation, but I was just thinking about that as a parallel to why we wear masks for the sake of everyone, for the sake of the collective. And it was such a light bulb moment for me. And I was sort of like, we need to start talking about peanut allergies <laughs> as the reason we're wearing masks. <laughs> Maybe some people will wear masks then, if I'm right? And I was just kind of like, wow, how do you or your family not make that parallel? She looked like she was in high school. I'm sure her whole school has to be peanut free. So I just like had this like, holy shit, like this to me is the value we need to return to. That's right. Because for whatever reason, peanut allergies aren't politicized, but somehow mask wearing and COVID is. Like if she had had an allergic reaction next to me and had asphyxiated or whatever, like God forbid, I would not have been okay walking away from that scenario throughout sort of my like wellness career I really started to see more clearly more examples of that. I tell the story in this book that I was taking yoga at the studio on 4th and Folsom, south of Market in San Francisco. There was literally like a homeless group of people who lived in the awning right outside the yoga studio. And so you'd have all of these yuppie, white, skinny, green juice drinking people go in and out their yoga studio looking all blissed out. And this was me. I would just pass them by as if it was nothing, right? And then I started to actually notice. And then I stopped and I was like, wait a minute. There is no amount of yoga I can do that's going to get me well enough to actually not acknowledge what's happening. That some people are like unhoused and hungry and barely surviving, much less living their most enlightened well life, right? So that's what started to really disrupt for me the idea of wellness for some. 
And I think you're right. The pandemic is a perfect example of like why that's not possible. Inequality is a perfect example of why that's not possible, right? We're all starting to feel the cracks in the system based on a deeply unequal and uneven distribution of resources. And so this idea of hyper-individualized wellness solutions and protocols and promises is bullshit. Not just is it bullshit, but it's actually going to kill us all. That's right. If, If we can't start thinking about each other a little bit more. Right. Well, and I think your story about being on the plane and looking for parallels in your own life is really good advice to me, to Anne, to all of our listeners around yeah, these problems are huge. And as you said, you're not writing the self-help book on how to change the world, but it does sound like one thing we can all do is just pay more attention to where we're living in our own bubble of personal wellness versus looking for examples of, oh, wait, here's a more collective opportunity. Well, and I feel like the question that I really got to at the end of the book was around how are we going to survive this, y'all? After all the research I had to do to write this book. And oh my God, for our listeners, this is such a well-researched book. There are a million footnotes and great references. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, how could I not write? Like, I'm not the first to write about these things. This is not a like, I know how we can survive this. This is a like, let's all start asking the question, like, how are we going to survive? How are we going to make sure there's a future for our children and our children's children? That's where I got to at the end of this book. Like I was like, oh, that's what this book is about. It's about collective (laughs) survival. Okay. (laughs) Well, when I think of how are we going to survive this for our children, I think of little you. I think of, no, really, I think of little Carrie, like little striver, little trying to be perfectionist, putting the earthworms in your pocket. And (laughs) I just wonder when you think back to sweet little Carrie, if there's any advice you might give her, any words of wisdom. Well, it's funny. I write in the book, I would tell my little me to eat all the years I lost not eating because of anorexia and eating like girl eat. But honestly, I feel like the thing I really learned about myself in this book was that underneath all of my striving, perfecting, hustling, reaching for, you know, in wellness, reaching for everything, reaching to feel good, reaching to enlighten the self was a desire to be in control of everything. And so much of that for me was shaped. My parents got divorced very young when I was one or two. And so I think right away I was conditioned to like take control, to be responsible for everyone, right? To take care of myself, to try and like make shit happen by being a good girl or a good everything. And so I really want to tell my little girl, I want to say like, A, you can't control anything. I'm sorry to say, and B, you don't have to. Really wonderful words of wisdom for all of us. None of us have to control everything and none of us can control everything. You know, how much it not just hurt my little girl, but how much harm my trying to control things my whole life or trying to be in control or control the outcome or control what I know, how much harm that's done to other people. Really reckoning with that and divesting from that idea has helped me, I think, be a better person, actually. Carrie, thank you so much for sharing so many words of wisdom and your story with us and just for being so open and vulnerable. It's been such a joy, such a pleasure for everybody listening. 
definitely check out Carrie's book, American Detox. We'll have information for that in the show notes and links to some fabulous other podcasts that she's been on, her TED Talk. She's got a great book club associated with the book. Yeah, I want to check out that book club. So all that information will be in the show notes. I've loved this conversation with both of you. Thank you for letting me get real and (laughs) down and dirty with my story. (laughs) It was really refreshing and I'm grateful for the space that you're holding for this. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you and you being here and writing this beautiful book. I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today. For our listeners, we really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. Mm